Dear Father, I pray that you prepare our hearts for what our future holds. And that I mean, Father, not only in all the many different ways our life can turn as a follower of Christ and as a man or woman who lives in this world, but also, Father, in the way you have the church going and in the purposes you have set forth for the world to end a certain way. I pray, Father, you would prepare us for what is coming. Whether that comes in our lifetime or whether we simply prepare those that are in our homes for what will come in their lifetime. But, Father, we know it is coming. And we know that when the world is turned in the way you designed it to go, it will be a difficult time, certainly for those who do not know you, but even for those who do. For though we will escape your wrath, Father, we may not escape some of those things that lead up to it. Some of the preliminary events you've told us must come first. And certainly even now, Father, in the world, there are those who follow you who are suffering as a result. And it has always been that way, and you say it always will. And so, Father, though we have the luxury of of peace where we may be today, many who hear, hear this may not have that peace. And so we pray for them, that what they hear in the word would strengthen them, just as we would hope it would strengthen us for the day we may face when you bring it our way. Help us, Father, to see these things with a sober eye and a reflective conscience, one that is concerned with eternal matters so that we may be concerned with what it is that glorifies you when we face persecution. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we're going to go back into 2 Timothy again, chapter 2. But before we do that, we're going to go to James. Go ahead and turn your Bible over to James. Maybe keep your thumb in 2 Timothy, and then you can flip back when we're done with James. We'll go back into 2 Timothy, chapter 2. So James, chapter 1. And the letter of James opens with a counterintuitive call for Christians to anticipate and even embrace suffering for the sake of Christ. I'll read verses 2 through 4 in James, chapter 1. James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I think it's safe to say that any Christian who's contemplated those words has questioned the logic of receiving suffering with joy. Because the two would seem mutually exclusive. We understand that to suffer means to be without joy, and conversely, to know joy is to be without suffering. So how can one be compatible with the other, we might wonder. Nevertheless, that is the Bible's teaching on suffering in our faith. And James goes on in that letter to explain how suffering is, in fact, a source of joy, or should be, for every Christian. First, as you look at what he says, you have to understand that the suffering that James is speaking about here is suffering that is associated with trials that the Lord brings upon us. James is not speaking about all forms of suffering because often we suffer just as a result of our own sinful choices and that's not a suffering that should result in joy. Hopefully it will result in repentance. But that's not what James is talking about. James is referring to suffering for the sake of your testimony. Whether by persecutions or just other difficulties brought upon us to test our faith, those trials, James says, are to be a source of joy for the Christian because they are designed by the Lord to bring opportunity. James says they test our faith. That is, they determine if we are willing to stand firm for Christ for eternal concerns over earthly concerns. In effect, trials are opportunities for us to reaffirm our commitment to our eternal future with Christ over some attachment to this world. And with each new opportunity, each new trial, whatever comes into our life that may bring some kind of spiritual suffering, by fighting against it, that is, by enduring it, You gain spiritual strength. Think of it like a muscle that grows stronger under the strain of exercise. 
That's the spiritual endurance that James says results from suffering in trial. And he says if we accomplish that consistently, then we will end up with what he calls a perfect result. It will leave us complete, lacking in nothing, he says. Which means, conversely, that a failure to endure well under such trials may lead to the loss of something, the lack of being complete in some way. So the question that James chapter 1 introduces us to is a question of what is this thing that we gain by our endurance that makes us perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing? Or by the other side of the coin, what is this thing that we could not have that might leave us lacking if we don't endure trials well? Beyond the spiritual growth and the blessings that follow with spiritual maturity, James is looking forward to something else. He's looking to the eternal blessings of rewards and honor in the kingdom. That is, to be perfect, to lack nothing, is a way of saying to receive a full reward. That reward doesn't turn on a single moment in your life. It doesn't even rest on a season of your life. Its progress is measured only at the end of your life. And therefore, a reward is only assigned once you've completed the race. So as we encounter trials in our life, and even if we should stumble at those once in a while, nonetheless, we still have good incentive to get back up and to continue enduring the next one that's coming because until the end happens, we are still in a process of growing. We are still in the, in the race. Our race is not over, as Paul would say. And therefore, we still have future opportunities to endure. We're still marching toward our reward. This is a common theme in the New Testament. And that's why we have reason to count suffering as a source of joy, because it means our race has not ended yet. Our opportunity for reward remains open. And if you have successfully withstood trials in the past, well then consider every new trial another opportunity for extra credit. On the other hand, don't take your past successes for granted since no one is going to end up in the kingdom without having stumbled at least once or twice. And if you have stumbled in the past in the face of trials, then rejoice over new trials because that's a sign that the Lord still considers you worthy to prove yourself again. Don't get discouraged about past mistakes. No Christian arrives with a perfect record, as I said. We're all sinners. That's, after all, why we need grace in the first place. So every trial is a chance... To be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, James says. And today in chapter 2 of Second Timothy, Paul is picking up on very much the same idea as he encourages Timothy to stay faithful in the face of persecutions and trials that are coming to the church in their day and in the city of Ephesus. Last week in chapter 1, Paul ended with a sobering list of men by name who had failed in this regard. Paul told Timothy these men had walked away from him and even in some cases walked away from the faith rather than face the persecution that Nero was bringing on the church. And in one case, at the end of chapter 1, Paul said he prayed that the Lord would forgive Onesiphorus, a man he named, and he referenced that he would be forgiven in the day, which we said was a mention of the judgment seat day when Christ will hand out rewards. This man, Paul said, had done much to support Paul in Paul's day, but apparently he had shrunk back when the going got tough. And then Paul listed those examples at the end of the chapter to remind and to exhort Timothy to do better. Because earlier in that chapter, he had given reason for his own willingness to suffer Christ. He said he knew Paul, Paul said he knew Christ was guarding his own reward, and therefore nothing could steal it from Paul. But then again, ironically, the only way Paul could see his reward come into jeopardy was if Paul himself retreated from his service to Christ. 
And that was now his concern for his protege, for Timothy. Because he had said, everyone in Asia is abandoning me. That's the wrong choice, obviously. Paul worried that maybe Timothy would follow suit. So now we're in chapter 2. And as we begin, Paul is continuing to reinforce the importance of remaining faithful to his call, even in the face of trials. And to make his point, Paul is going to use three analogies that teach different aspects of God's reward system. And let's begin where Paul does with an introductory encouragement. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, coming on the heels of Paul's list of faithless men in chapter 1, you can see Paul pivoting back to Timothy with a hope for better things because he says, Now you, Timothy, so as to distance Timothy from the examples of those others, he says, Timothy, you be strong. You know, we don't know how close Timothy was getting to following the bad example of those other men. I don't even know if Paul knew for sure whether Timothy was on the verge of bolting like the other ones did. But he's clearly concerned for Timothy. And you can hear him here working hard to persuade Timothy not to make the same mistake. And he implores him to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, you and I know the word grace. It means unmerited favor, that it's something God does for us before we even know we need something from him. In the case of salvation, it's a word that describes God's choice to send his spirit into our hearts, leading us then to cry out, Abba, Father, he says. But when you hear that we are to stand strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, this is a different form of grace. This is one given to us in Christ, that is to say, This form of grace is only available to those who are already in Christ Jesus. And this unmerited favor enables the believer to stand strong against the temptation to be unfaithful in the face of some kind of trial. This form is an enabling power. It does not guarantee a positive outcome. Otherwise, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about Onesiphorus. So this is a form of God's unmerited favor that is dependent on something we do as well. And so we must conclude that believers possess a God-given power to stand firm against temptations to flee persecution in unfaithful ways, and yet we must avail ourselves of this grace in order to benefit from it. As a matter of faith itself, you first have to decide to remain faithful rather than shrinking back. That's the test here. Then, having decided you're going to stand firm in the face of some trial, then, by the grace of God, you'll be strengthened in that decision to stand so as to be able to do so. But it starts with a decision to do it. That's why Paul says to Timothy, I call on you to be strong. He's calling Timothy to use the strength God has made available by his grace. But then that just begs a new question. And that question is, why would one believer stand while another one does not? What makes the difference between those two people? Is it just merely uh, the whims of different personality or circumstance? Or is there something fundamental that we can learn about that lets us prepare in such a way so that we will always be the one who does the right thing under that moment and not become another Onesiphorus, so to speak? The Bible has an answer. The Bible says that believers must renew their minds, and in the renewing of our mind, we will have the thinking of Christ so that in those moments we will think to do the right thing and then God's grace will come alongside and empower us to see it through. You have to take up a process, the Bible says, of obtaining the mind of Christ through the Word of God. And as you obtain the mind of Christ, the old self you have 
the one that you were born with, the one that is dying around you, it used to make decisions on the basis of earthly values and fleshly desires. You have, by the Spirit of God in you, a new self now. It will call you to make decisions based on the mind of Christ and the leading of His Spirit. How do you move your thinking out of the old and into the new so that you'll make the right decisions? The Bible says you do that by training your mind to think like Christ. And the Bible calls this process of training the renewing of your mind. The word renew in Greek, it just means to make something new, as the word would imply, right? That is to change your thinking from the depraved ways you knew before faith into a way that is in like-mindedness with Christ. Paul explains it this way in Romans, chapter 12, verse 2. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. So Paul says your walk, and that's another way of describing your life, your walk must be transformed, and he says you'll do that by a renewing of your mind. And the renewing of your mind comes only by a study of God's Word. That is, as you know more and more about what God's Word says on matters of spiritual importance, you move away steadily from a mind that is conformed to the way the world thinks, and you'll move toward a thinking that is in the likeness of Christ's own mind. And Paul says, as you move in this transformation, you will be proving the will of God, proving what the will of God is. In other words, you will show the world your new thinking and your new behaviors, and through that new thinking and behavior, you'll be proving to them what is good and acceptable and perfect from God's point of view. You become, essentially, a billboard for what is good to the world. Secondly, Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians that this renewing of your mind is a daily renewal of the inner person, and it leads to eternal glory. 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. And then he says this, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Look what Paul says there. He says, your outer sinful nature, this person that you think you are physically, that we identify as us, we think of ourselves as our body, as our person, in reality, that's not you at all. It's an outer shell of you that's decaying, and self-evidently so, right? And every day it's going to get a little closer to the grave. It's fading, even as we're still wearing it. Meanwhile, inside you is an inner person, a spiritual person, the eternal one that has been made new by Christ. The comparison Paul uses in Ephesians is that your outer self is like an old garment you're taking off one thread at a time. And your new garment, your new self, you're putting on. And the goal is to get that new one shining through the old one as fast as you can. And this renewing process comes as a result of a dedicated approach to the Word of God. He says, day by day. You can't get it in one study. You can't get it through a summary of the Bible. You can't get it through Christianity 101 and 201. You can't get it by going to church occasionally. My favorite retort to invitation to come study with me is someone who says, I've already read that book. That just tells me you have no idea what Bible study truly is, because it's not about a consuming of the information on the page. It's about a relationship with God through His Word. And it's a lifelong process. So that inner person is a person that God gave you that is to shine through a person that you were born with. And that process of trading one for the other happens because you move your mind to where Christ is. And then in that movement of thinking will come a resulting change in behavior in line with your thinking. 
And then notice, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, he said that this renewing will be tested from time to time by something he called momentary light affliction. Now this is the man who talked at times about being stoned, shipwrecked, imprisoned, beaten, hungry. For all of those things and more, Paul would wrap all of that up and call it momentary light affliction. And it is in relationship to what's on the line eternally. Paul says that testing gives opportunity for the new self that's being renewed to become all the more visible as we live it out in those moments. And as you endure infliction, you're not only proving out the will of God to the world, but you're gaining for yourself the benefit of something Paul says is eternal, weighty, and glorified. Something far beyond comparison to anything you can lose here in the course of that suffering. And so now you begin to see how the transforming of your mind can bring you to a point where you can literally count suffering as joy. Because by the counsel of Scripture, you realize, I've gained the mind of Christ, which lets me see trials the way Jesus saw his trials. We come to understand that our affliction for the sake of Christ, our fertile ground where God can plant seeds of opportunity for our eternal glory. The opportunity to respond in faith, sacrificing earthly things to the glory of Christ, leaves the potential for heavenly reward. Who could not want an opportunity to earn that? The grace of Christ then works in us to give us the power to stand in those moments. So I don't even have to do the hard part. I just have to make the upfront decision to go through with it. And then God in his grace will let me have the power to stand in it. That's why Paul emphasizes to Timothy that he must ensure the teaching that Paul left him with be shared widely within Ephesus and through trustworthy men. You notice that I read that in verse, I think it was verse 2, right? Why did he connect that to standing strong? Well, because if the church in Ephesus was to withstand the coming persecution successfully, it had to be prepared through the renewing of the mind. It had to be prepared to withstand what was coming. The renewing of the mind was a necessary prerequisite for that church having any chance for success when things came against the church. And how was that going to happen unless faithful men took the teaching Paul had left them with and then, by the grace of God, shared that with others in the church, preparing them? You know, it's funny to me that this principle that you have to teach someone if they're going to get different behavior and you have to reinforce that teaching and you have to do it consistently and you have to do it day by day. That concept is well ingrained in corporate thinking, academia, even in the way you raise your kids. But somehow we lose some of that, it seems, when we get into the church setting. We don't put an emphasis on that academic daily approach to our faith. I've even heard in some cases that thought be sort of poo-pooed as if that's not Christianity. Christianity is heartfelt. If it's all head, it can't be real, as if we've made one part of our body the enemy of the other. The reality is that you become who you are in your heart because in your mind you begin to think like Christ. But I've yet to find someone who is absent a knowledge of him, live him out in any meaningful way. I don't think you can. So that's Paul's concern for Timothy, is that he would have in his heart a desire to teach on the principles that will not only hold him to the faith, but those around him. And then Paul moves to teaching Timothy on the very point of suffering, using three analogies, which I think he gives to drive home the logic of why suffering in trials is worthwhile. Beginning in verse 3. Paul says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. And the hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. 
That last line in verse 7 would seem to suggest that Paul knows that he's just wrapped up a whole bunch of wisdom into a very short number of words. And so he's, he's reminding Timothy, don't take what I said too lightly. Give it some thought and the Lord will show you what you are to understand. And we pray the Lord will do the same for us here tonight. Now, for the second time in so many chapters, Paul has told Timothy, suffer hardship as I did. He keeps pointing to the need to suffer in his own example as reason. And to explain the sensibility of that call here again, now Paul draws on three analogies. And first, let's look at them in turn. First, Paul says that suffering hardship, suffering hardship for the sake of the gospel is a, a little like a soldier called to duty. Now, I have some qualifications to speak on this particular analogy. I spent nine years in the Air Force active duty. And that's not counting the four years I spent in the Air Force Academy where they were beating me down to the point where I'd actually be willing to spend nine years in the military active duty. So I think that gives me at least some first-hand sense of what Paul means when he compares serving Christ to military service. Although if there's any Marines or Army guys in the room, you'll probably not think that my Air Force service qualifies as soldiering. You know, a hard day in the Air Force is when the cable was out in the officer quarters. So as it turns out, Life in the military is pretty good preparation for life in ministry in a number of ways. A soldier has to be 100% committed to the mission, to his or her role, because the mission's too important to tolerate half-hearted efforts in what you're there to do. Notice Paul says that we must be a good soldier. In fact, he's going to use one adjective for each of these analogies. In the case of soldier, it's to be a good soldier. The Greek word for good literally means wise, to be wise. And in the context of soldiering, Being wise would mean setting the right priorities in your life to make sure that you're ready to do the job of soldiering well. And I mean specifically setting aside pursuit of the rest of the world, at least to some degree, that is what passes as normal life for the civilian. You can't have that in your life very much as a soldier. You may have to be called up at any moment to go to the other side of the world. You have to have your affairs in order. You can't be absorbed in things that would get in the way of a call to duty. Military service, in my experience, especially among those who are on the front lines, is an all-consuming lifestyle, especially in times of war. And that's why Paul says a good soldier cannot concern himself with the affairs of everyday life. Instead, the only desire of a soldier should be to please the one who enlisted him, which would mean in literal terms, pleasing the sergeant, pleasing the commander, ultimately pleasing the nation that you're serving. Military life just has no place for token contributions. And then Paul says, Christians, we are to serve in a battle of sorts in a very similar mindset, a very similar attitude. We're to be looking at our duty in serving Christ like the duty of a soldier. We have a new mission in life, one that's eternally important. We have a battle. We have an enemy. We have the world. We even have our own flesh that we fight against. And these things take priority for us. I want you to imagine if soldiers routinely ran from the battlefield at the first signs of conflict. And they did so declaring, well, I wasn't ready for this. No one told me I'd have to deal with this. We'd look at them like they were idiots. What do you think you were doing when you signed up to be in the military? It means they weren't educated in the realities of what it was going to require, right? Well, in a way, you could say that's exactly the situation that you're looking at any time a Christian runs from a trial or abandons their testimony in the face of difficulties that come because they're wearing the name of Christ on their uniform. That person should have been told on day one, you've got a big target on your back like Christ did. If he persecuted Christ, he'll persecute you too. But there's something in it for you if you withstand it. You are soldiers, which means you're preparing for battle. And therefore, when the fight comes, you can't be surprised and you can't shrink back. 
You must remain in place. You have to serve and glorify the one who enlisted you. So in Paul's very first example, what did we just learn about withstanding suffering and trials? We learned that our outlook, that our preparation in serving Christ includes an expectation that there will be a fight, that there will be trial, that there will be difficulties. You're on notice. And therefore, you have to understand your role and your mission will eventually bring you into conflict. So be ready. Then secondly, verse 5, Paul uses the example of an athlete running in a race. Now, Paul has moved from how we prepare for service, that is, understanding what's coming, now to how we pursue our service. Think of an athlete for a minute. An athlete must compete well to receive the prize. The Greek word compete can also be translated strive. So the emphasis here is on striving, on a constant expending of effort toward some goal. Because after all, who competes without desire for the reward or the prize that's given for those who compete. I mean, what's the point? I know today it's fashionable, especially with young kids, to assign everyone an award at the end of the competition. They never did this when I was young. They don't want any winners. They don't want any losers. We all know that's not real life. Nothing in life works that way. I suspect most of the children aren't fooled by that charade either. We may not be keeping score at the game, but I have a suspicion they are. And winning is a primal motivation. That's the whole reason you strive. The incentive for striving in any competition is the prospect of a prize at the end for those who compete well. It's naturally ingrained in us. And Paul says, if you want that prize in any kind of competition, you have to compete according to the rules. You have to compete according to the way the race requires that you run. So if the race requires that you stay in your lane, well, then you can't stray outside your lines. And if the race requires you cross the finish line, Well, then you can't stop running before you reach that point, right? We all understand that. To put it simply, if you don't give your best and work within the system that's been given to you, whatever that is, you can't succeed in something that you're involved in, which is a shame because that was the whole point of being involved in the first place. In the same way, Paul says, every disciple of Christ has entered a race of sorts. You began that race the moment you became a believer in Jesus Christ. I don't know if you realize that or not. God put you in the starting blocks of this race. I think a lot of Christians are still there. And that race continues until you die and enter into the Lord's presence. During those two moments, from the moment of your faith to the moment of your death, you're in a race competing for rewards, for eternal rewards. Only in this particular race, you're not competing against other athletes. You're not competing against other Christians. You're competing against yourself. That is your old self. Against the fleshly desires, the selfish nature, your fears, your temptations, anything that might draw you astray, draw you away from what it is God has set before you. So your challenge is to compete according to the rules. What are the rules? Well, the rules of this race are actually very simple. Stay inside your lane, finish the race. That's it. The world, the enemy, your flesh, it's always trying to draw you outside the lines that God has drawn for you the place he's trying to send you, the things he's asked of you. So whether by sins of one kind or another, or distractions around earthly gain or earthly pleasure, when you're presented with opportunities to leave your lane, to go do other things, those are the moments when you're being tested to know, are you in this race for the right reasons? Are you headed to the right goal? And sometimes the enemy or the flesh or the world will put a hurdle in your place, if we want to draw the analogy one step further. Something you have to get over. And as you come up on one of these trials, you know, the challenge at that point is to consider whether do I make the leap over this thing? Do I put in the effort or do I just sit down here in the middle of the lane and forget about this whole thing? 
You can become like Onesiphorus and, and establish a track record of running really well for a whole bunch of time and then you get to that hurdle and you just decide that's it, you're done and you sit down right in the middle of the track and you forfeit your prize. Likewise, we have to bring that same eternal outlook to our walk as Christians. You have to commit to running well according to the rules, so to speak. You have to keep your eye on the prize. You have to give your best to Christ, whatever form of service that is. And you've got to guard your life so that you stay in the lanes, so to speak. So what are we learning from a second example here of the athlete? I think we're learning that serving Christ requires a missional mind, one that isn't easily distracted, one that recognizes that you need to pursue this race to the end. And then finally, Paul compares our life of Christian service to that of a farmer. And in this example, Paul emphasizes a hardworking farmer. Hardworking. The word for hardworking in Greek literally means weary. So if you've ever felt weary in your walk as a Christian, well, Paul acknowledges that's a part of the plan. And the life of a farmer is certainly filled with long days, backbreaking work, preparing fields, sowing seed, harvesting, and so on. Paul says only after the harvest arrives, though, does the farmer receive his payment for what he's done. His payment is a portion of what comes up out of the ground, the fruit of the field. So interestingly, his provision is entirely dependent on a successful harvest. He can't give up before the harvest arrives. Think about a guy that might have sowed the field, watered it, cared for it for months, and then decided a month before the harvest that it was just too much for him and he stopped. All that work he did comes to nothing. Only by successfully finishing it does the harvest produce something for him. If he perseveres, Paul says he's the first to profit. So his reward comes at the end, which is why he's patient, which is why he does weary work for many hours, why he's willing to suffer hardship. Because giving up early means getting nothing. Likewise, Christians can't lose sight of the goal that you have in serving Christ. You're going to have difficulties at times. The world may hate you for his namesake. Or you may just find what you're fighting against to be discouraging. Maybe the trials you're going to face are going to be intensely personal. The Lord working to uncover your own weaknesses so that he can strengthen you for something better in the future. Or maybe they're going to come as a matter of public persecution. You're caught up in a big storm of activity in the church in some part of the world. doesn't matter what it is. If you feel like quitting, if you wonder why it's even worth doing at all, think like a farmer. And understand that the fruit of your labor won't be revealed until the final harvest. So if a farmer can show patience for months in pursuit of a simple crop, certainly we can endure a lifetime of serving Christ for the glories to be found in the kingdom, right? How can we tell Jesus that he's asking too much of us when so often we willingly sacrifice for far less in this world? I mean, think about it. How many years will you invest in education? How many years will you invest in training for some sport? for some professional pursuit? How many hours, how much money have we invested in meaningless things that perish with us? Is seeking the pleasure of your Lord worth less sacrifice? We can see Paul's point, right? Farmers understand their work's going to be hard. They go into it knowing that. They understand the reward comes only at the end. They persevere knowing that. And they know if they give up early, they get nothing. We should think of our walk with Christ exactly the same way. No one said it would be easy. It's going to take the rest of your life you're going to get weary. It's worth the effort. And if you stick with it, the reward will be yours. So go back through my examples or his examples. The first example emphasized preparation for service, being mentally prepared to devote your life to something without distraction. The second example illustrated the proper pursuit of that service, that like an athlete, you stay inside the lines and you keep your eye on the prize. And then the final example reminds us of the need for persistence, even as you grow weary, that patience is a prerequisite to receiving the reward. Simply put, 
If you know God to be good, and certainly he is, then you can be sure that when all is said and done, and you're standing before him, everything you had to put up with in your walk for Christ will easily be understood to be worth it. You will not have any doubts once you see what reward you receive. So trust him in that even now, and serve him well. And then Paul offers one more example, only now he offers the chief example for all Christians, which is Christ himself. Verse 8, Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it, eternal glory. He actually gives two examples here, one of Christ and one of himself, but he starts with Christ, and there can be no better example, of course. Paul alludes to Jesus' example here in all three of the qualities that came out of the three examples earlier. First, Paul refers to Christ rising from the dead. Now that statement immediately draws your attention back to Jesus' suffering, right? The fact that he died reminds us of his suffering that led him to his death. That is to say, no follower of Jesus Christ will ever be able to say they suffered more in serving Christ than he did in serving us. So we really have nothing to complain about there. He's our ultimate example of suffering in obedience to the call of God. He willingly suffered in obedience to the Father, and he did so to serve God in an eternal mission. That's the same call he's put on our lives. And then secondly, Paul says he was risen from the dead, resurrected, in other words. So what happened as a result of Christ's suffering? His suffering in service to the Father brought glory to him in the end. But notice the order. He had to suffer before he received the glory at his resurrection. You have to be dead to be resurrected. He had to persevere. He had to finish the race. Then came the glory. That order is not incidental. That is the whole point. And then Paul adds, and you might have thought this was a bit obtuse, but he says that he was the descendant of David. That's all important to understanding what he's talking about. Paul's alluding to the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant established that David's, King David's descendants, would rule over Israel and over all nations on the earth forever. That promise was directed at Christ. It was looking forward to Christ, the descendant of David, receiving the kingdom, sitting on the seat of David, the throne, and ruling over that kingdom without anyone to challenge his authority. It comes in the day of the kingdom when Jesus receives the rule that's been promised to him. Psalms 8 says this, Psalm 8, 5. You have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands, and you've put all things under his feet. That's a reference to Christ ruling in a future day. But have you ever stopped to consider that Christ has yet to receive his reward? Christ has died and received his glory, but he has yet to receive his reward because it awaits the arrival of the kingdom. This is the point. Christ himself is still waiting for his reward. Like us, he is still showing patience since what he died to receive, he has not yet been awarded by the Father. He hasn't received his bride in full, and he hasn't received his inheritance of the kingdom yet. So here's the question, here's the point. If Christ suffered willingly for eternal glory, and he persevered even to the point of death, and if he is even now still showing patience, awaiting his reward, how can we not be willing to do the same? Paul, he says, willingly suffered hardship for Christ, to include imprisonment as a criminal, which is a way of saying, I know what I'm asking of you, Timothy. I understand the risks, and I'm not asking anything more of you than I was willing to suffer myself, 
which is to go to prison if necessary under Nero's persecution, if that be God's will, for the sake of what you're doing in serving Christ. You can't tell me that that's some line in the sand that you can't cross and no one should be willing to cross. I've already crossed it, Paul would say. But then Paul adds that imprisonment wasn't at the expense of the mission. No one can imprison the Word of God. I love that phrase. We should have that on little plaques in our homes. No one can imprison the Word of God. What Paul means is that even as persecution might come against leaders in the church or the church as a whole, that has no bearing on God's ability to deliver the gospel. None whatsoever. Ironically, Paul says in verse 10 that he endured these things for the sake of the chosen, that is, of those who would obtain salvation in Christ. So what he's saying is this. Far from lessening my effectiveness in the mission... I'm enduring persecution in order to accomplish the mission. Because persecution advances the gospel far more in God's economy than concession or compromise could ever do. That's always been the great irony of persecution. The more persecution, the faster the church grows. The more opposition to the gospel, the more people come to believe in the gospel. So the enemy actually does his own undoing as he persecutes the church. And conversely, when the church is at its least threatened... It's usually some of the worst spiritual maturity you'll ever see in the church. I think the condition of the church in the West now would support that. When the church stands firm in the face of persecution, it leads to growth and, I should add, the best kind of growth. You don't get a lot of false confessors joining the church when there's a threat of persecution as part of the deal. But as the church undergoes persecution, it draws attention to the love of God's people. It puts our love for each other and for the world in stark relief against the hatred and sin of those who persecute us. It makes our love shine out all the more when people see what we're enduring at the hands of ungodly people. No different than Abel. Abel's godliness was amplified by his brother's persecution and hatred. So will the message of the gospel be amplified by the world's hatred of us. As someone once said, the blood of martyrs waters the seeds of faith. Regrettably, I think the church has sometimes sought to avoid persecution by compromising with its oppressors. When this happens, the excuse you'll often hear from those who lead the church into that compromise is, well, we have to make some kind of concession to these demands or else our enemies will ensure that the gospel is silenced. You're hearing that even now in our culture, in little ways where people are talking about the pressure against speaking out on certain social issues, on certain ungodly things of our day, with the retort being, if we aren't more careful in what we say, they could shut us down. Paul's making exactly the opposite argument. Paul's own testimony and the whole history of the church proves this thinking to be exactly wrong. God said that his word can never be imprisoned. The world itself was made by God's word. So exactly how much power does the world have to restrain the word of God? None. It's hubris for us to think God needs us out of prison, so to speak, in order to do his will. Timothy couldn't use that excuse to avoid persecution. And we can't either. And that brings Paul back to summarizing his central point, and he does it with a memorable expression. It's an expression that sometimes brings some controversy because it's occasionally misunderstood. 2 Timothy 2, verse 11. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So Paul summarizes a relationship between faith and service and reward, that continuum of thought, by coining a saying or a memorable expression. In your Bible, it may have been set out in poetic indentation. He's singing it almost like you might sing a song. 
like a rhyme. And he starts with, in verse 11, this assurance that this is a trustworthy statement. In other words, we might say, you can take this to the bank. In Greek, the word Paul uses for trustworthy is pistos, which is the word for faith. So you could say, this is something you can put your faith in. And the first part of the saying holds this. If we die with Christ, then we will live with him. And that's a concise expression of the gospel itself. Essentially, the gospel is a matter of believing two things. If you want to believe the gospel, you're really saying, I believe two separate but related thoughts. First, you're saying that you believe Jesus is the perfect, sinless God-man who died in our place on a cross because he's paying the penalty for our sins. So we believe in God dying on our behalf. And then secondly, you're also maintaining that he didn't stay dead, that he was resurrected by the Father, resurrected from the grave, never to die again, and that we share that same future with him because just as we are like him in faith, we will be like him in reality, in body. So those are two parts. They're neatly summed up in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, when Paul says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the gospel. So when a person places faith in Christ in this way, the Bible says that person has died with Christ. In other words, God assigns Christ's death in place of the believer's own death for sin. And in that sense, all believers can say they have died with Christ through their faith in his payment on the cross in their place. So that's how Paul describes saving faith, as having died with Christ. It's a very succinct way of describing someone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ. We have died with him. Then Paul goes on to finish the thought, saying, well, if you have died with him, then you can also be just as sure you will live again with him eternally. That's the second half of the gospel. Just as he died in our place, we will live with him in eternity. So our faith in Christ assures us that our physical body, the one we have right now, is not the last one we'll ever have, that we will receive a new one, we'll walk the earth again, we'll never die again, we'll be glorified as he is. Notice the gospel does not rest on your good works. Human works have no value for God in the question of how you obtain eternal life. You cannot work your way out of a debt of sin. You cannot earn righteousness that God only assigns by faith. Because only he could pay a debt we owe him through a death that he was willing to take on our behalf. But... Since we know that we cannot earn a salvation through works that is only available through faith, we might then be tempted to think, well, then works really don't matter at all. Works are just not even part of the conversation for a Christian. That must be the thinking of any Christian who shrinks back in the face of a trial or persecution. That must be something in their mind. They must have thought that their behavior has no long-term bearing on their future interests. Otherwise, why would they do it? There has to be a disconnect there, I have to think. Or at the very least, they fail to appreciate what's on the line. So they think that having saving faith is just the end of the story. As some would say flippantly, it's fire insurance, right? I don't need to worry anymore about my eternal future. But the reality of Scripture is, it's just the beginning. It's not the end of anything, it's the beginning of things. It's put you in the starting blocks, it's not dropped you off at the finish line. Again, you're not earning your salvation, we're talking about a journey having salvation. A journey of what you do now with your salvation And that's why the saying doesn't end in verse 11. It goes on to verse 12. And Paul says, If we endure with Christ, we will also reign with him. Now the Greek word translated as endure carries the sense of persevering in the face of difficulty. Of having patience in the midst of a difficult work. Much like the farmer. 
And Paul is saying, if you work patiently serving Christ, that's the idea, if we endure, it means to work hard at something with Christ, then he says, we will reign with him. And we know that Paul is no longer addressing the topic of salvation here. Between verse 11 and now verse 12, we have moved from the topic of salvation to something else. And we know that because Paul has now introduced the necessity of human works. And if human works are a necessity, it cannot be a conversation of salvation anymore. Instead, we've moved to the next step of the Christian experience. Having come to faith and been saved by our faith, now we begin a walk or a journey of serving Christ, and now our works are certainly in view. We now begin to serve the Lord, and as disciples, we're called to serve faithfully, and that includes enduring trials, waiting patiently for our reward, like a soldier, like an athlete, like a farmer. And Paul says, if we do this, if we endure... He says, we will reign with Christ, which is a reference to our eternal reward. Scripture teaches that all believers are promised both some degree of inheritance in the kingdom, plus we will have opportunity to reign with Christ in governing the physical earth. Some portion of the physical earth that makes up the kingdom that we're waiting to join as Christ returns to establish it. That earth will require ruling. Christ rules the whole of it, but he does it through a government. And that government is a government by you and I, by the church and by saints from all time who are serving Christ in that way. In Revelation 20, verse 6, John records a brief mention of this. He says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So you'll have a job with real responsibility with glory and honor that is commensurate with your role in the kingdom. And in the Gospels, Jesus explains that our opportunity to do that reigning is determined by our faithfulness in serving him now. Some believers receive greater reward than others. And Jesus says that our present time serving him on earth is a test of our endurance and our faithfulness. And by that test, he's discovering who's deserving of greater responsibility in the coming kingdom. And he uses parables at various times to illustrate this teaching of how he assigns responsibility. And there's a key statement in just one that sums all this up rather neatly. In Matthew 25:21, at the end of a parable about talents, Jesus says this, The master said to the slave, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. This is a neat way of understanding, of summarizing how this system will work. We have been each given a degree of responsibility now in what he's called us to do. And collectively, all of these things are little things. Little in the sense of how they would compare to the magnitude of things available to serve Christ with in the kingdom. We all have opportunities in our churches. We have opportunities to witness in our communities, our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces, to serve in all of those same places. We've been given some kind of spiritual gift, which aids us in that work. We have been given a measure of endurance, a measure of faith, as the Bible calls it. We have the things, the essential working tools to make sure that we will all have plenty of opportunity. And even in the way the parables describe this process, you get to see that it's proportional. The one who was given more to begin with is expected to produce more in the end. And the one who's given less to begin with is understood to be producing less in the end. It wasn't about competing with each other. It's a competition within ourselves of doing what we can with what we've been given. So those who make the most of their time on earth serving Christ will be given the greatest opportunity to serve in the kingdom. And scripture alludes to this greater honor, this greater responsibility or inheritance in many different places. And always with the sense that it's far more valuable than anything we could gain for ourselves here and now. So that if anyone would ever wonder at some point, is it worth it? 
Do I really need to make all these sacrifices? Can't I just have some of what I want now and some of what I want later? That seems like a fair trade. What we'll all discover in the end is we should have been willing to give it all up for what was behind door number one. So while our salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in the death and resurrection of Christ, our endurance in serving Him as a disciple gives opportunity to enjoy greater rewards assigned by Christ in the kingdom. But now that just raises an obvious question. What if a Christian fails to serve Christ faithfully? What if a believer were to go so far even, in the face of persecution, for example, to deny the Lord, to deny Him our service, and even to deny that we believe in Him? Well, Paul addresses these possibilities in the rest of the saying, beginning in the second half of verse 12, where he says, If we deny Him, then the Lord will deny us. Now, keep in mind, we're still in verse 12. We're still in the context of enduring and reigning. So now Paul is speaking of the opposite condition of enduring and reigning. And the opposite of enduring is not failing to have faith. The opposite of enduring is failing to endure. That is giving up in your service. So Paul is describing a denying of Christ our service. Denying him our endurance. And this authorist denied Christ his endurance when he was apparently facing persecution in Ephesus. He walked away from Paul instead of sticking to the course. That's the choice to live for yourself and for this world instead of living for Christ and the kingdom. That's the issue. It's a behavioral issue. And in such a case, Paul says, the Lord will simply deny us, which is to say, he'll deny us some portion of that reward. Just as when you withhold your obedience to your earthly parents, they would deny you privileges. Or they would deny you allowance of some form. Or they would deny you freedom. So it will be in the kingdom, that is, that Christ will deny something at some level for those who have denied him in their service. That's something you take away from the parables if you take them seriously. Masters who return demand that their slaves have been faithful, and there is a price to pay for those who are not. So if you endure, you receive. If you deny him your endurance, he denies you what you might have received. He's holding this out as motivation, telling you about it in advance so that you would have some reason to do well. And remember, once more, the judgment of these matters comes at the end of the race, not at the middle. So if you're sitting there today worried that you've already lost so much or that you can't get anything at this point, take comfort in knowing your race is still underway. You're measuring it at the midpoint, perhaps. Maybe early. Who's to say? So you only have to return to your lane, pick up the pace again, and you'll be fine. That is to say, I don't think God is without the grace to uh, assign you a proper reward at the end, no matter what you may have stumbled upon somewhere in the middle. Does anyone reach the end without stumbling? Does anyone have a testimony that says, I ran the race perfectly all the way to the end? No one, save Christ. No one reaches the end without a testimony of good days and bad days. So don't let the enemy deceive you into remaining sidelined because you may have had a bad day. Now, some teachers look at verse 12 and they come away with a different understanding. They assume that when Paul says Christ denies us, or when someone denies Christ, that it's speaking here in terms of salvation, as if someone ceases to be saved as a result of some denial of Christ in that way. But that's not what Paul's trying to teach. And I suspect Paul wondered if someone might take his words in verse 12 and go in that wrong direction, which is why he added one more line to this saying in verse 13. Paul says, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. That is to say, even in the case where a believer might foolishly walk away, 
not just from service, but from Christ himself, as if to say to the world, don't associate me with this Jesus anymore, because if it means you want to kill me, I'm ready to say he's not mine. Much in the way Peter seemed to do the same thing in the hour of Jesus' death. Even in that case, one who has truly been saved, made new in the Spirit, that person is to forever remain Christ, not that they have the strength to do that, or the commitment or willingness, but rather, the Spirit will never leave us nor forsake us. The Lord has promised we will be resurrected as a function of our faith. He has promised, and He will keep that promise, because He is faithful to His promises. That's why Paul says in verse 13, that He cannot deny Himself. And that's literally a reference to the Spirit of God who lives in us. So when Christ put His own Spirit in us, He could no more turn his back on us in that sense than he could turn his back on his own spirit because one is the same in this case. So the deposit of the spirit in every believer is your evidence that what he has promised he will be faithful to fulfill because he has united you with him in a way that he can never separate. And so Paul has added that to make sure that you and I don't overstate what he's trying to say in verse 12. Yes, our behaviors matter. And yes, there is something on the line. And therefore, yes, we should take a sober look at our lives and be at all times dedicated to serving faithfully. But our position in the family of God is never in question. Having come to faith, we will be with him in eternity. We just don't want to see that relationship involve suffering loss in the kingdom, if it can be avoided. So we have to consider our call to be a disciple. We have to ask, are we willing to endure hardship? Do we make the most of every day to please him? Do we avoid being distracted by the concerns of everyday life like a soldier wouldn't allow? Are we running our race with an eye on the prize, competing according to the rules the way an athlete would do? Are we willing to be patient like the farmer, content to receive our rewards in the kingdom? And then when trials and persecution come our way, will we have invested the time necessary in renewing our mind through the patient day-to-day study of God's word so that we would choose to stand in the power of his grace rather than to run? A successful walk in Christ will always begin with that understanding and know that your service to Christ is tested by trial. Know that that's an opportunity for joy because there's something building up in heaven. So when you get up in the morning, rise to serve Christ's agenda. When you serve, do it through a meditation on his word first, followed by an action that comes from the mind of Christ. When you get discouraged, when you struggle with sin, when you fall into despair, know that he has the power to have you stand if you would make the better choice next time provided that you are studying. And when you confront trial and persecution, and even if it were to be the case that we come to death as a result of serving Christ, take comfort knowing your life is poured out for the one who died for you. So it's a pretty fair trade. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the reminder that we prepare for these things so that we'll stand in your power. We may all pray, Father, that we would have never had the need to concern ourselves with these things but if we did that Father we'd be ignoring the very scripture that tells us to count it joy so Father I pray that we each have further opportunity to demonstrate our faithfulness for I know none of us Father have succeeded at all past opportunities and we would in, we would um, covet more opportunity knowing what, what is on the line and though we know that means we're asking for trial it means we're asking for tests We know, Father, you have given us the power by your grace to stand in them if we would just choose to do so. And so we pray, Father, that by the renewing of our mind through the scriptures tonight, we'll have the power to stand, to choose, so that you can give us the power to stand. We pray these things, Father, in expectation that you will answer the prayer as you do for those who pray in your will. 
And would you bring us back next week so that we can continue renewing this mind that needs to know you better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.